0: Miss the show, no problem. On point and on this podcast, as we head into yet more never-ending restrictions, the head of the science table telling folks, stop moaning and do your part. Of course, it's easy for him to say because he hasn't yet lost a paycheck. We will talk to one of those businesses, and it is not a business that is moaning. They are desperately trying to survive the never-ending restrictions and changes that are literally destroying small businesses. We'll talk to Charles Kabuth who is... Literally one of the country's biggest club and restaurant owners, and he's tried to stay positive and done his part for 21 months, but he, like many, many others, is losing hope and says this industry may never, ever recover. A 10-year-old Afghan child who was approved to come to Canada with her family and who was just waiting for us to show up has been shot and killed by the Taliban. We're going to talk to one of the many vets who's given their blood, sweat, and tears trying to save the people we promised we'd protect and like us, he's asking, where is the urgency? And you think interest rates are 4.7? Oh, no, no, not 4.7%. It's quite a bit higher, according to one banking analyst who argues StatsCan is telling us fake news on the real inflation rates. They're a lot higher. Why the disconnect? He explains the data is incomplete and inaccurate.
1: Let us talk. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. <laughs> We need to change our attitude. What do you do if they, if you're on a beach and the tsunami is coming? You tell me. You say, oh, there's no tsunami. No, you can't. We need to change our attitudes. What's the problem with going back to 25% capacity in a restaurant? Life will continue. We need to stop moaning, face the reality and do the right thing. It's as simple as that.
0: Yeah, stop your moaning, says the guy who hasn't lost one paycheck. Just lock yourself down forever. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, December 17th. Oh, here we go. Here we go into what should actually be the biggest weekend of the year. If you're in the hospitality industry, of course, because this is the weekend when all the big Christmas parties happen. This is when you go bar hopping. This is when you do your big Christmas dinners out with friends. The weekend that bars and restaurants should be making bank. Retail stores should be breaking records. That's the time of year this is, and that's the weekend we are in. And, of course, that's being wiped out by these latest restrictions, which once again puts these very shaky small businesses and industries back on their heels after 21 months of constant loss. But according to the head of the Ontario Science Table, we should just stop moaning. Stop moaning. Just suck it up, says Dr. Peter Uni. Uni was talking to the CBC where he was demanding that we just... All need to do our part, again. You know, we just need to stop seeing people, stop shopping, stop going out, stop living, he says, you know? And the host of the show rightfully pushed back. He actually looked rather shocked, pointing out the obvious, that five waves into this thing, people are exhausted, mental health issues are exploding, businesses are going broke, and Uni's response, stop moaning. Stop moaning, says the guy pulling in 300000 a year and who hasn't lost a paycheck. Stop moaning, he tells the bars and restaurants that can't survive on 50% capacity. That can't continue to start only to be stopped again. Hiring staff only to let them go. Buying food only to have to throw it out. Stop moaning, he tells the server who will lose tips. Stop moaning, he says, to an industry that has been losing out on sales for 21 months. Stop moaning, he's telling the hairstylists, the estheticians who are not going to get hair and nail appointments, because what woman's going out right now? Stop moaning, he tells this industry that has been shut down almost as long as all the hospitality industries, and which spent thousands of dollars on plexiglass, only be told by the unis of the world, well, those don't work. Stop moaning, he's telling small retail, trying to sell what little stock they managed to get through the supply chains before they have to put it on sale. I mean, what's the problem of losing 50% of your sales? He arrogantly tells industries that have been literally brought to their knees because they have been bearing the brunt of punishment from his draconian decisions. So let's just face some reality. Mr. Uni is arrogantly out of touch This pointy-headed academic is just one of many during this pandemic who sits in their ivory tower and busy themselves whipping up fear, but who refuse to see the suffering that their decisions are making, that their draconian measures are not working. Stoddy Brown, of course, giving his modeling, seemed to get it. He said, you know, Omicron numbers are surging, but what he didn't say was that people should not stop moaning. He's not recommending lockdowns. He's not recommending school closures because he understands the collateral damage. He's not saying don't live life. His message Thursday was be careful, reduce your exposure, get vaccinated or boosted. Uni, on the other hand, though, tells us, yeah, suck it up and live in fear. Lose everything. Again, be it your business, your life, your mental health. I mean, imagine, imagine how that sounds to the family. Of a young child suffering an eating disorder because we now have record numbers of those across this province. I guess they should just stop moaning and eat something, right? Or what about the child now cutting themselves or depressed or riddled by anxiety because they are so fearful to go back to the isolation caused by school closure? Should they too stop moaning? Or What about the person suffering chronic pain because they have to wait 30 months to get their hip replaced or a knee replaced? Should the woman who can't get that lump checked in her breast because she can't get efficient healthcare, should she stop moaning? I guess those addicted to opiates should also just suck it up and hope their next fix isn't the one that kills them. We now have data rolling in, we've talked about it on this show, of all the consequences that come with Unionist Science Table's moan-worthy measures. And if anyone needs to face reality, it is them. Because it's thanks to their lockdowns and their unchecked hysteria that we're now seeing record cases of mental health issues. Record numbers of opiate overdoses that will reach 2,200 people a month starting January. 27,000 Canadians have died because they couldn't get surgery in time. They missed life-saving diagnoses that would have saved their lives. You ever hear Uni and his pals worry about that? No, of course not, because all they care about is COVID. COVID. The reality is Uni and his pointy-headed pals have gotten more wrong than right. Their worst-case scenarios have yet to come true. And their hide-from-the-world strategies have basically brought us back to where we started. We are literally no better off today, two years in, than we were in the beginning of this clown show. In fact, we're worse because now we're just exhausted, stressed out, broke. We have done our part. We just want our lives back. And I thought this was interesting. NBA star Draymond Green summed it up really well. You know, we've done all we can do. I've done everything I can do. Uh, I didn't get vaccinated and a booster shot and all those things to not be able to live my life. Like, I've taken all the necessary precautions that was asked of me. Um, I have, yeah, done just about everything. I've done everything they asked me to do, so. I I don't think that's going to lead me to sitting in my room. Yeah, he made those comments during a basketball practice when he was asked how worried he is about Omicron. He's done all he can do. We got vaxxed. We get boosted. Wear the mask. Distance. We do our part. What are we going to do? I'm not sitting in a room for the rest of my life. He's right. And I think 90% of the world actually think like that, despite the narrative that we get every day. If anyone needs to stop moaning, it's guys like Dr. Yuni who should spend a lot less time fear-mongering and start coming up with strategies that actually work so that we can get on living our lives. And of course, as you've been hearing, we can't do that because we've we got to dig just a little deeper. How boring is that talking point going to get? Just, we just need to dig you a little deeper, right? Because here we go with more restrictions that are just going to keep coming every day. Just prepare for it. Coming every day because we just can't quit them. And the Premier coming out late today with uh, restrictions, so you got to have smaller gatherings, which means less capacity at bars, the restaurants, the sporting events. You can go take in a game with 10,000 fans, but no more than 10 people for dinner at Christmas. Because that makes sense, right? You, can't go to a, you can go to a club that you can't dance, because that would be really fun. You can't see the elderly if you and they are double-vaxxed and masked unless you're outdoors, Because that's fun. Eating dinner outside in the winter is a lot of fun.
2: The decision to limit people's ability to gather, especially during holidays, is an extremely, extremely difficult one to make. And I know these uh, measures will have an impact on businesses during the important season. That's why Ontario joins Quebec's call for the federal government to expand supports for businesses and workers.
0: All righty, that is the Premier talking about never-ending seesaw COVID rules that just keep changing. They go up, they go down, they change. You know, what were rules last hour won't be the rules tomorrow. That is the only certainty we have these days, is it will just completely change. So late this afternoon, Premier Ford says he's going to reduce capacity again in bars and restaurants and large venues. And, you know, if you're an owner of a bar or a restaurant or a banquet hall, I mean, this is the busiest lot, of it, busiest weekend of the year for many of them. And we're heading into what should be the busiest money-making time for these businesses. And here they are again being told, do less business. I mean, imagine trying to run a business where you rely on big crowds and you have to order alcohol and thousands of dollars of food ahead of time, only to continually be told, throw it out because we have another wave. That is just here we are. Charles kabuth owner of Inc. Entertainment, owns some of the biggest nightclubs, restaurants in the country and has been a very, very positive guy throughout this pandemic, but I can't imagine he's feeling so happy these days. He joins us now. Good to have you, Charles.
1: Thank you. Here I am again.
0: (laughs) Again. Wave five. uh, Wave four. I don't even know what wave we're in. I I I just know. know that. I'm not even
1: paying attention anymore.
0: You have literally tried to be one of the most positive people that I have talked to. You have been... You know, p- optimistic about trying to keep staff, optimistic of trying to roll with the punches, doing all the changes, doing, you know, what you have to do. And here you are again. Where where's your state of mind, you know, heading into what should be a very busy weekend?
1: Honestly, t- today, uh, this morning, I got up to some really bad news, whether it's certain people, you know, getting COVID that work for me or mm-hmm. the shutdown, Uh uh, you know, going down to 50% or shutting down liquor at 10 o'clock. And for me, it's a it's a big concern. Like, we, we've already ordered everything from New Year's, from party favors to champagne to everything else. And the other problem we're facing is more and more uh, staff are leaving the industry because it's so unreliable now. So this shutdown, I know people are not maybe paying attention to it, but uh, this shutdown will probably... Eliminate another 10, 15 percent from people in the industry, Uh, including two of my staff this morning that said to me, if we shut down one more time or we go down to 50 percent, you don't need us. We're definitely leaving this industry. So eh, it's bad for the time being and it's bad long term. This is really I I think, you know, COVID is here to stay. We just have to learn to live with it. We're all getting vaccinated. I know we're almost at 90 percent. And this is not a deadly strain. It's just a flu. Um, I mean, listen, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just somebody who's affected. And um, at the same time, two to two and a half thousand employees of mine are affected. So it takes a toll on all of us.
0: Yeah, it really does. And I want to play you something that was said by someone who heads the science table. It's a comment that Peter Uni said uh, to businesses like yours. And I want to get your reaction to what he said. Take a listen to this. We
1: need to change our attitude. What do you do if, they, if you're on a beach and the tsunami is coming? You tell me. Hmm. You say, oh, there's no tsunami. No, you can't. We need to change our attitudes. What's the problem with going back to 25% capacity in a restaurant? Life will continue. We need to stop moaning,
0: face the reality, and do the right thing. It's as simple as that. Stop moaning about it, Charles. Stop moaning uh, about it. Just do more. Yeah. Your reaction.
1: <laughs> you know, everybody's got their point points and their side, and I see that he's side, but he's a doctor who... You know, works 10, 12 hours and goes home. And most doctors, I don't want to say don't socialize, but they're not involved in our industry and don't un- quite understand uh, what it takes to get up and open and run a business and, and so on. I think people are vaccinated. It should be their choice. I do understand, you know, the, the big, big events and thousands of people that are not wearing a mask. But in our restaurants, you know, everybody walks in with a mask and they show their ID and their vaccination confirmation and they sit in their seat and they don't move. I mean, it it just cannot, because of, you know, basketball and hockey, it should not roll down the hill all the way to small restaurants or restaurants that are uh, 100% watching um, all the rules and regulations. Um, I do see his point. I mean, things are a little bit bad out there, but, you know, this strain from what I'm told and friends of mine who are uh, or have been sick, uh, you know, four or five days, they're bouncing back and uh, they're back to normal. But then again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just saying it's really taken a toll on our business and our staff and our finance and our attitude mm. and our you know, mental health uh, more than anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a trickle-down effect as well because when you're not going out to the clubs or your restaurant, you know, you're not going to get your hair done, you're not going to get your nails done. I mean, there's a trickle-down to the whole industry of, and it affects a lot of people. But how do you run a business without any certainty at all? Um, you know, every time it seems you guys are certain to get back on your feet, you get a little bit of freedom, you're knocked back again. And and I can only imagine, and I'm just guessing, based on what we've seen before, that these Every, we're going to get more changes. Monday, it could be something else. Wednesday, it could be something else. New Year's could be shut down. Who knows? How do you run a business? Uh,
1: I don't know. You tell me. It's uh, it's devastating, honestly. It's uh, it's horrific. Like the energy of the staff today in my uh, restaurants and bars. I'm at ML now on Bloor, and uh, there's no energy with the staff. Everybody's scared uh, of the shutdown or 50% where they end up losing. A lot of the shifts, uh, people canceling because, you know, of all the press and the media and uh, the morale is down. Like, it's really, really tough for us. And I really don't think we're going to make it to New Year's Eve. My understanding, they're going to shut down uh, restaurants and bars by 10 o'clock. So New Year's Eve really gets started in, in the restaurants and bars at 9 and 10 o'clock at night. So uh, Two,
0: years this. Two years of Two years of this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, listen, uh, this strain, I'm told by a friend of mine who is a doctor and has been a doctor for 27 years, is less, uh, you know, powerful than, uh, than, a, than a flu or a bad cold. So we just have to learn how to live with it moving forward, right? We just can't bounce back and forth nonstop. It's really insane. I'm scratching my head. I'm trying to figure out how to keep moving forward uh it's tough it's very tough
0: yeah i mean two years into this thing we kind of seem like we're back to square zero not making any progress and to your point of living with this thing that isn't part of the conversation uh it should be how long can you hold on
1: nobody knows nobody knows how long this will last for there are no uh you know firm numbers no firm dates uh, it's a moving target, and uh, you know we—I mean myself—Inc. Uh, we've been around a long time. And, you know, we'll last, but uh, you know we'll we'll come out of it one way or another. But it's all the other people, huh? And it's also suppliers. Half the—I'd say one third of the suppliers when we reopened after the shutdown did not exist anymore. You'd mm-hmm. call a phone yeah. number, and it's like, sorry, out of business, no more. So. There's a lot of people that are, you know, we're hanging on with the skin of their teeth and now it's gone mm-hmm. again.
0: And business aid. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what's being talked about. I don't know what will be on offer, but uh, there's going to have to be something.
1: Nobody knows yet. Nobody has an answer. I try to uh, kind of, uh, um, you know, try and see if I can get information, but nobody knows. It's, You know, a lot of uncertainty, and that's the worst part, when nobody knows, really, when you don't have a, you know, a clear vision, a clear answer, a clear view of what's coming up. It's like driving, uh, you know, with your eyes closed on a windy road. It's like you're going to crash eventually.
0: So, it's uh, bricks and mortar, but behind those bricks and mortar are people's lives, and uh, including your own, and a lot of young staff who don't make a lot of money and are going to make even less. It's a real, uh, real heartbreaking situation. And I talk to you, Charles, a lot, and I hope every time that it's going to get better. And then you get knocked back. I really I appreciate you uh, taking Thank some you. time because I know that this weekend should be a busy one for you guys.
1: Thank you. Appreciate the call. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. That is Charles Cabooth, owner of Ink Entertainment. So. You know, these are the big guys here. Um, There's little guys. I don't know in your neighborhood, but around here in Toronto, you go around, there's whole blocks, completely shut down, out of business, gone. Those businesses aren't coming back, and those businesses are much more than bricks and mortars. They are people's lives, and they are families, and, you know, just this uncertainty is never-ending. This is a headline that really should not be missed, and it's a tragic one, but very, very predictable as we learn – that the Taliban killed a 10-year-old girl whose family was preparing to come here to Canada and who was being brought here as part of a program for Afghans who not only did we make a promise we'd bring here, they helped out our forces on the front lines. And and this little girl's name was Nazifa, just this beautiful, angelic, brown-eyed girl with little buck teeth. And she was shot at a checkpoint in Kandahar on December 10th as she and her family members were leaving a family wedding Apparently, according to reports, the vehicle they were in crossed through a Taliban-controlled checkpoint, and they were initially cleared, and then the Taliban turned around, opened fire on the car, killing this little girl and injuring three others. This is a child who was a top student. She was excitedly learning English so that she could be ready when she came here to her home. Her dad worked for our military in Kandahar from 2005 to 2011, and they were approved to come here. And then got stuck in the country when the Taliban took control. These guys did everything by the book. They got the paperwork. They cut through the nightmare of the bureaucracy. And they were approved to leave. And now she's been murdered. And her family is back in hiding, begging for help, along with thousands of others who also can't get out and who have been absolutely failed by this country and could very well suffer the same fate if we do not get our act together. Kenan Walper is operations officer of Aman Lara. They are a group that are helping evacuate vulnerable people in Afghan. He joins us now. Good to have you.
3: Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me.
0: It is such an angelic um, picture when you see this little girl kind of looking up at you, and, and you see, and then you read the story behind it. it. If this doesn't trigger this government into action, I don't know what will.
3: No um no I fully agree uh right before I, you guys contacted me I was just looking at some other photos I have of, uh of this young girl and uh I was trying to fight the tears it was it is uh it, it's it's such a, a horrible tragedy and it's um it's one myself and many veterans and and uh, NGOs and all our partners have been you know screaming from, from the rooftops uh, that something like this was going to happen uh and unfortunately this is the uh I'd say today the most prolific uh, failure uh, so far.
0: Yeah, I mean, we get the photo ops, we get the news announcements, a couple of hundred have been brought in, um, but that doesn't tell the real story. The real story is that the Afghan interpreters and their families um, should have been out a long time ago, and and frankly, this government did not move until it had to, and the people that are coming in are generally those who have already been processed and are, are embassy staff, but it's not the people that are in the most direct, um, you know, line of fire. It has been left up to vets groups like your own, who have shelled out a lot of your own money, a lot of your own blood, sweat, and tears to do the job that the government should have done, and yet it's still not being done. And there's, I just don't, I don't know where the urgency is.
3: Um, you know, that's a very, that's a very fair question. Um, so, I mean, to date, we have uh, we have solidified a relationship with the government workers, right, with the various departments uh, within the government of Canada, um, and we do value those relationships because that is the way out. Uh, when we speak about mm-hmm. gaining urgency, um, mm-hmm. that's where it needs to come from. Uh, then there, are, I can tell you, uh, quite frankly, there are many people I encounter within the government uh, with you know, the, the working people uh, who have been outstandingly dedicated to this cause band, and, but their, their frustration is echoed, uh, yeah. similar to mine, similar to everyone's. Um, uh, and you, you painted a, a pretty reasonable picture of what has occurred so far. Um, it's been initially the initial effort was funded almost purely, uh, for getting people out of the country, aside from the flights that we saw at the very beginning has been purely funded by, by donors. Um, mm-hmm. like our partner, uh, Veterans Transition Network, uh, through private donors, through, uh, through different banks. Uh, and it's, they were able to create safe housing, uh, which kept mm-hmm. people you know, feeling safe and secure for a, a period of time, right, and up until about November 5th, when we had to shut down the majority of our safe houses. So it's, um, it's just, there's a major gap. And the people getting out of the country, as you alluded to, um, are not the people who, are, who I think the Canadian public would, would envision. Uh, mm. Are the target, um, while some people are, we are getting a small circling of people uh, out of out of Afghanistan. The majority of people who are getting out are already out of the country. Um, they got there through their own means or you know through through lucky breaks, I guess, in the beginning. Uh, and so where we are at presently is we have thousands of people in the country that still want to get out and they need to get out. And so we have we don't have children like Young Nasifa. Running around the you know, bullet filled streets um, you know and and having something like this happen uh, would, what what breaks my heart the most about this situation is as you said she had the paperwork she was excited to come to Canada she was learning English um, she was you know it's it, like I have a I have a six year old daughter and a two year old daughter and I just I could only picture my own children when they're excited about something and no different Canadians need to understand. I know it's hard to picture people in a faraway country, but this child is no different than any child you know. She was a beautiful young child with hopes and dreams, and she was going to come to Canada and do, hopefully do great things and have a great life. And she was robbed of that chance because of the delay.
0: Yeah, I mean, but there's so many issues here. I mean, on a moral level, uh, ethical level, all these different levels, you know, we we made a promise. We swore an oath to these people that if they served our country, we would bring them here to this country, that they would be saved. And whether the Harper government failed to do that, certainly the Trudeau government had many, many years to do this. They did not do it. Everything has been done reactively. And, And I think her story, Naziva's story, is just a precursor to what we're going to see because the Taliban's not going to stop hunting for these people and the process is not getting any easier because, as I understand, you know, this family was cleared to go. They had gone through the checks and balances, but they still had to get applications for Afghan passports. They had to go to Pakistan, try to get to Canada. I mean, the process is simply too hard. This government knows it's too hard, and they are not changing it.
3: And so, yes, um, when... Our group and so many other groups uh, working for the same goal, initially we were saying, we have a window here. Uh, and we're talking, you know, the early September time frame. We said, this is the window to get people out now. And we had the means yeah, back then. Yeah. We did. We, we truly did. Yeah. And we do now. But as time passed, as there was delays uh, in these applications, and the government has you know, made a more dedicated effort, but we're in a severe deficit at this point um, in terms of... Uh, getting through applications. So the result, the direct result of that time delay is that countries like Pakistan, these third-party countries are, who need to, I mean, they rightfully do need to put measures in place to protect their citizens and ensure that the yep. flow of refugees is there. But it's made highly stringent controls. Uh, so you need an Afghan passport. And that's what this family was doing in Kandahar. Now, saying a passport is something we take for granted in a country like Canada. You go to You know, you go, Service Canada, Service Canada, and you get your passport. Well, it's a totally different proposition for someone who's currently in Afghanistan. Um, There's been numerous reports of people being disappeared from these passport offices, um, biometrics that were left behind, uh, being employed on these people to identify any previous uh, relationship to the American uh, mission or the Canadian mission or any other uh, foreign nation mission in Afghanistan. And it's a terrifying prospect for them they, when they go to get their passport um, they don't know if they're going to come back uh, and yeah. and so rightfully so people are taking risks that are, are not necessary they're going to they're going to return to places like Kandahar, uh, which is a highly dangerous area right now um, compared to other parts of the country. Uh, I served there myself and it, it seems worse than when I was there. Um, uh, and then further, I mean, you have to get your Pakistani e-visa. Just, this is just if you're talking about going to a ground move, to go via ground. And people are being rejected left, right, and center for these uh, visas for various reasons. Uh, there's, an, there's an industry that's kind of formed around it. Uh, people are desperate and people are taking advantage. Uh, not necessarily the Pakistani government, but predators selling fake visas, mm-hmm. uh, selling fake passports, charging exorbitant rates for passports, which are essentially fabricated. And may get them through the border, but will probably likely fail uh, when they go to exit the country in Pakistan. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's very dangerous. So, and the, the picture I'm painting here is just to drive home the point that it drives people to dangerous, dangerous uh, straits at this point. They're desperate. They're hungry. They don't have any money. And they have young children. I, and uh, mm-hmm. they do things that uh, can lead to their family getting killed, like we saw in this example.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are these are people who you um, and many of our vets have relationships with and have had for years, and so you know them, uh, they trust you, they trusted this country um, and have been failed. On the ground right now, um, I know that a lot of vets like yourself are still continuing that work. Does that just continue to go on, just not wait for this government to act?
3: Well, we never waited for the government to act. Um, there's some of our initial, The initial work done by some veterans are... It was, it was incredible, uh, the, the vacuum that they filled at the time. Yeah. Um, and many of them are not really part of this mission anymore just because they got so burnt out. It was so gut-wrenching for them, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I started back in the, at the end of August uh, with, this, uh, with this, I guess, called a mission. And uh, it, it, like you said, these people trusted us. Um, and when a politician says something like 40,000 people are coming in. They need to understand the impact because when you have people who are highly desperate for information and for hope, they are going to take that at face value. That's, um, and they're going to say, if you're in Afghanistan, you have your family and you've served Canada in some capacity, you're thinking, okay, they are going to help me. And they do trust us because they've seen our faces. They shook our hands. They worked alongside us. You know, I fought alongside many amazing Afghans and interpreters, you know, I've, I've seen them bleed for us. I've seen them die for us, yeah. um, and it's and I've seen so many, so many of the people I work with there are now dead. Um, so yeah, I imagine yeah. I can understand fully the terror, the justified terror of people, uh, in their position on the ground, for are thinking, I'm so close, I just don't have a few documents. I have you know? It's yeah. so close yet so far.
0: Yeah, it's 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 incredibly cruel. It's incredibly cruel. Um, And a real injustice. How can um, people, Keenan? I know that you know my listeners follow this closely. How can people um, help? Whether it's five bucks, ten bucks, how can they help your organization?
3: Well, I mean, there are many good causes. Our uh, which accept donations. uh, Am and Laura, um, our particular group. I can speak for them. um, We do have the ability to take donations, um, and that's important because there's the expenses are so amazingly high. Um, just transporting these people out. Um, I run the ground operations as part of my role. So I run the convoys that move people out. Mm-hmm. There's a pretty heavy expense attached to that because you want these people to get out safely. It has to be done yeah. with proper tactics and a and proper level of professionalism attached to it um, to guarantee their safety because they're going through highly dangerous areas. And if it's not traversed properly, it will lead to our evacuees dying. Um, whether it be through a road accident or through there's an ISIS case threat in these areas. Um, it's, 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 a highly dangerous prospect and then safe housing. Um,
0: we had the yeah. ability
3: to safe house and uh, we're, we're about to lose that. Um, we already lost a huge capacity of it. And it, that's those houses really provided a beacon of hope for, hope for people like the family of this young girl. They, they have nothing. They have no money. Um, and they, they just, they need somewhere to rest and be fed yeah. while this paperwork is sorted out. I understand it takes time. I don't expect the government to throw caution to the wind and endanger Canadian citizens by letting everyone in without vetting them properly. I understand there's a process, but there has to be some sort of flexibility, has to be exercised here. Um,
0: yeah, there's got to be the will. There's got to be the will, and it's just not there. there.
3: Is- Correct. I agree oh. with you. Um, I mean, in terms of there, there does not seem to be, a strong political will. I, I believe the government, the, the workers in the government, have the will. You gotta, you gotta enable them. Just like I can't do my fulfill my role without money or without funding, without the tools to get it done. They can't get their job done without the proper resources being brought to bear for them. Yeah.
0: It's heartbreaking, but nonetheless, uh, we appreciate the work you guys do and all the other vets, and and we'll continue making sure that this stays in the spotlight. Keenan, very much, I want to thank you for your time. I know this is an issue that's very personal to you and uh, certainly not a happy uh, time, but I do appreciate you taking the time to chat with us.
3: Thank you very much for the support, Alex, and uh, it's uh, great chatting with you.
0: That is Kenan Walper, who is with an organization called Amon Lara. They are still working on the ground. They are not waiting for the government to get off its rear end, and so they are one of many vets groups in this country who are doing the heavy lifting. That should have been done a long, long time ago, and a pox on our house for allowing this to happen and a pox on this government for failing to act when it should. Surging inflation. Yes, it is not a good movie to watch, but uh, without question... The story of twenty twenty two if you ask me, because cost of living is pricing a lot of us uh, just about out of everything, you know what you buy in the grocery store, just the basic necessities. everything is getting more expensive what but when it comes to the numbers, do they actually add up? because stats Canada came out with new finger figures during this week, saying that inflation's now at four point seven, which is you know the highest we've seen in twenty years, but according to my next guest. He's now buying those figures and argues that investors are getting fake data when it comes to the real story behind the real inflation numbers. He's a guy named Derek Holt. He heads capital markets economics at the Bank of Nova Scotia. And he says the actual rate is closer to 6%, 6% and cites the auto market, in particular the used auto market and the chip shortages that we're seeing that have sent inflation higher than what is actually being reported, which then begs the question, why isn't it being reported? Derek Holt, Vice President and Head of Capital Market Economics at Scotiabank in Toronto. He joins us now. Good to have you.
2: Good to be here. Thank you.
0: All righty. So why wouldn't those numbers be reported? Why do you say there is a disconnect to what we're hearing from StatsCan and what the actual story is?
2: Very good question. In the United States, the United Kingdom, so some of the other major economies around the world, it is standard practice to include used vehicle prices in the Consumer Price Index measure of inflation. Canada is an exception. Uh, Statistics Canada uh, doesn't capture used vehicle prices. It uses new prices as a bit of a proxy, and they're not rising anywhere nearly as rapidly. I think that's a major issue because right now, used vehicle prices, according to Blackbook data, are up 38% year-over-year in the month of November, and they were up 10% month-over-month for the biggest single-month gain that we've seen at least since 2005, as far back as I've looked. Add that in, that's how you get up to about 6% inflation.
0: Okay. Can you explain it in dumb people's terms, like in, in Main Street terms, why, um, you know, factoring in used car data is so important and w- and why Canada is such an outlier on this?
2: So it's important because a lot of things hang upon... Uh, accurate inflation numbers for example the government indexes a lot of payments like transfer payments for old age security for uh, jobless benefits uh, on the basis of what inflation is doing and if it's being underestimated then perhaps those payments are being underestimated Uh, it's also important because the bank of canada when determining what should be the cost of borrowing in the country Mm -hmm. in terms of policy rates uh, also relies upon accurate measures of inflation to see how well they are performing relative to their goal of only two percent inflation, which is way beyond. So you need accurate data in order to have, uh, in order to be able to rely upon uh, each of these areas.
0: Now, you talk about the U.S. and the U.K. Um, track these things closely. Statscan seems to shrug this off and, and cites, well, we don't have the data. So why, why would we be such an outlier um, you know, in this area? And at a time when you know we're seeing inflation rise to the highest levels we've seen in 20 years, why do they get away with that?
2: Okay, I think there are a couple of things here. For one, Statistics Canada has always tended to say uh... the used vehicle market is difficult to evaluate it's tough to get accurate prices because there are so many different types of used cars different ages different models different degrees of disrepair um, and so it i have some sympathy for that but other countries seem to find a solution for this and there are gauges that they can be using in order to try to uh, include used vehicle prices in cpi so i, I don't really buy that argument I think they they should be making an effort. Uh, The reason it's become a much more important issue now than ever before and why it has kind of flown beneath the radar until recently is because Hmm. of all of these problems in global supply chains, the shortage of new vehicles and the fact that people have been pushed into the used vehicle segment in a way that's driven demand through the roof and prices with it.
0: Yeah, and supply chain issues were an issue before the pandemic. It's just that they were ignored and it came all to a colliding kind of bottleneck, you know, during the pandemic. And it's not going to ease up anytime soon unless we change our approach to to supply and demand. Um, so that is going to continue being a factor in 2022. This is not going to get improved anytime soon. And as you know, if you've been in the in the market for a car, uh, they are very, very difficult to find. And so you, you see the people jumping, OK, I'll get to the used car market, and those prices are being driven up. Um, so, so there are a lot of things pushing and pulling at us, um, and I think, you know, we're not totally getting the the full picture. And there seems to be, and maybe you can clarify this, this disconnect between what the major banks are are saying and seeing and what the Bank of Canada is reporting.
2: You know, measuring inflation is a tricky business, so I have a certain degree of of, uh, empathy for the the challenges facing Statistics Canada. It's just that on this one particular issue, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of getting accurate numbers. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, we have to bear in mind that inflation figures, CPI, uh, will always be looked at with suspicion by individuals because CPI captures average prices that the typical consumer is paying. Well, you and I don't buy the same items as one another, and a and third person and other people in the country all consume differently. Some people rent, some people buy homes. Uh, some people uh, lease cars, some people purchase them. We mm-hmm. all buy different types of goods. So inflation to you or I or anybody else can be a very, very different uh, phenomenon than what we see being reported for the average Canadian.
0: Right. I mean, if you run a, a Main Street business, if you're in finance watching the markets, you know, you've got to be able to tell the story. You've got to be able to understand the story. You've got to be able to make decisions. What do you see 2022 as the the, the underlying story and what people need to watch for?
2: I think we are going to see the two forces uh, driving inflation both come to a simultaneous head. And one of them is ongoing supply chain problems Uh, the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 virus is probably going to uh, make a little bit worse into the start of the new year. So more shortages, Mm -hmm. more more hesitant workers rejoining the workforce, uh, more wage pressure. But the other one being that. Uh, we're running out of slack in the economy because we've come so far in our recovery. And so now that gives more companies more pricing power to raise prices in that environment. And I think that combination of factors is going to keep inflation pretty hot throughout next year.
0: Yeah. And look, uh, there's a political spin to this thing. I mean, the the Trudeau government does not want to have to tell the real story because they don't want to have to answer for it. And, and, you know, uh, it's been an interesting kind of uh, bit of theatrics we've seen in the last uh, few days, you know, they're going to tell us, you know, we're going to keep interest rates low, you know, between 2 to 3%. But do you see that, that being feasible given the current situation? I mean, we have an economy that isn't uh, growing uh, like we're told it is. We don't have the same scenarios as the United States or other countries. This is not transitory. And so, you know, if you're the everyday person trying to make some decisions, do I get a house? Do I not get a house? Do I renew my mortgage? Do I not? What's going to happen to interest rates? Where do you see it going? Because Again, we get one set of information from the Bank of Canada, which is always too difficult to, to explain or understand. Uh, we get Stats can figures, which, you know, might be questionable. What should people be looking for then?
2: I think we should be looking ahead to... Uh, some uncertainty in the near term but we're expecting overall 2022 conditions to be quite favorable for the economy we're expecting strong growth we're expecting further uh, job gains uh, we're expecting a further pickup in immigration numbers that should buoy our housing markets and yes it count upon the bank of canada Uh, To do its job here, and I think they will in raising interest rates to try to cool some of that inflationary pressure, but we're still probably likely to end the year with still historically very, very low interest rates. So they're raising interest rates for the right reasons if the economy is performing well and inflation is relatively hot.
0: Let's hope for some better times ahead and a little bit more, uh, you know, security and nonetheless more pos- positivity as we head into a new year. Derek, I appreciate you kind of crunching the numbers and giving us a story.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That is Derek Holt, uh, VP and head of Capital Markets. Of economics at Scotiabank in Toronto. So they watch this stuff carefully and there you go. Thank you for listening. Of course you can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.